Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. And welcome to Saga Shorts, where we're reading the short stories of the Saga Age of Iceland. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And you're still wandering around trying to find a way to introduce these things. I was, <laughs> as you said that, I was like, that's not how we've introduced it in the past, but is it? That's, I don't think we have a, a solid intro set up for these. I've got a team of writers in the back room working on it. Oh, thank uh, goodness. For now, uh, it's more important to me that we get cracking on our holiday-ish episode of Saga Thing. Holiday-ish, yes. Well, mm-hmm. we should probably say uh, what it is we do here before we jump I, into I it. Said, I said that already. No, more broadly, I mean, generally speaking, if we could. All right, fine. Be my guest. Well, here on Saga Thing, we're working our way through the sagas of the Icelanders, and we recently finished one, the saga of Barth, the Snaffle God. It was a weird one. It was a very strange saga. And after we finished it, we debated a bit about which saga to cover next. And by the time we finished discussing it, well, our semesters were ending and we were both too far behind on grading and other work to actually start on the saga this week or last week (laughs) or the week before. So, uh, Uh, no, no. In fact, uh, I should probably be grading right now. Are you serious? Wow. Uh, And on top of that, uh, we've both had a bit of upheaval in the past week or two that's delayed our work on the next saga. Yes. Uh, I lost a computer due to an acute case of excited puppy for one thing. Oh, yes, you did. Uh, That was something. Uh, my younger dog was born during the pandemic. I think you announced him a couple of months ago on mm-hmm. our social media. Uh, and he's not used to people coming to our house because, of course, no one has been. Uh, but it's also winter in New England now. We had to have some necessary work done on the heating flu in our house. Mm. And the puppy absolutely lost his mind with excitement, leapt into the wires of my workstation, and completely destroyed it. <laughs> I think you uh, you mentioned the uh, coffee mug landed square uh. on your... <laughs> On the laptop, right? Yeah, which I deliberately always keep safely at a distance from my computer. But, of course, when you yank on the wires and you pull the laptop into the coffee mug, mm-hmm. it doesn't really work. Yeah. And the thing John's not mentioning here is that he had uh, all of his work on that computer and he mm-hmm. just assumed that OneDrive was was functioning. It turned out not to be. Nope. But uh, the, 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 the brilliant work, uh, big shout out. To our tech support at Bridgewater State University, Um, they managed to do, after three days of work, they managed to recover nearly all of my hard drive. That's fantastic. Uh, So, yep. Uh, So I'm more or less recovered. New laptop, new wiring, duct tape on the microphone, (laughs) the works. And the dog and I had a heart-to-heart talk, and we've agreed that it was entirely my fault. There you go. So that's my end. Uh, and Andy, in spite of this story, you went and got yourself a new puppy. <laughs> I, I don't know what happened. I really don't know what happened. Um, uh, yeah, you know, we, we like having two dogs and we recently uh, found ourselves as a one dog family and started looking around and stumbled into this this lovely little puppy that we're calling Grimnir. Uh, his, his name at first was Sancho Panza, um, but uh, it just didn't sound quite right. It didn't quite fit him, so... Grimnir it is, and uh, that's that's what the family could agree on. 
<laughs> and he's a delightful little puffball. If you haven't he, seen a picture of him, folks, look on our Twitter or on our Facebook. Yeah. I'm sure he's there somewhere. He is there somewhere. Um, yeah, he's uh, and right now he's a bit of a handful. So, you know, I imagine. Good yes, luck with him. Don't Adam, let him near your computer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no kidding. Uh, so is that it? Can I get uh, back to grading now? Soon, John, soon. But first, we have a story to tell. Ah, yes. Uh, We decided, since we were too buried in our work and broken computers and puppy puddles to start a new saga this month, that we'd instead dig into our stock of Icelandic fatter, the short stories which appear in the same manuscript contexts as the sagas. And if I'm not mistaken, this, I think, is the first one of these we've done since back in April, when we last covered the tale of Volsi. That was, uh, yes. (laughs) The tale of Volsi. Uh, that was uh, to give people a sense of what kinds of stories can turn up in the Thouter Vaults. And the tale of Volsi is the story of a farm of horse phallus worshippers who sit around the fire at night, composing dirty poems to their penile deity. Uh, yes. Until their nightly seances are broken up by a disguised King Olaf. <laughs> okay, that that's not typical, though. It's not like there's a one in three chance of picking a story about a gang of barnyard willy worshippers. Yeah, no, that one is unique and brilliant. Um, but honestly, so is this one in a very well, different way. This one is uh, much more of a seasonally appropriate story. <laughs> yes. So this is our uh, Yuletide tale for the year. It's been a tough year for everyone, Andy. We can all use a little <laughs> holiday cheer. Okay. Uh, but to be clear, this isn't an actual Yuletide story. We do have something like that coming for you that will release mm-hmm. on Christmas Day. Um this one's not a Christmas story either. What What is it really, John? Why did we choose this one? Well, for this episode, we're telling a heartwarming tale. It's a oh, okay. legend of a jolly fellow, a man dressed in furs and coming from the north bearing gifts. Well, let's not St. Nick this up too much there, John. <laughs> He's got one gift, one big, hairy, dangerous gift. Yeah, that's true. He's not so much bearing gifts as gifting bears. This is the... <laughs> Story of Althun of the Westfjords. And yes, it's the story of a man who decides to give a bear to a king. Mm. In fact, it's sometimes called Althun and the Bear. But it's not just a story about a bear delivery service. Althun has a long road to travel in the story. So, okay, uh, what do we need to say about this one before we get started? Anything? I think we just said it. Guy with a bear. Uh, Oh, and of course, there's the Desikels. Ah, yes, desikils. So desikils are the short story equivalent of our usual Hrofenkel measurement, the metric that we use to determine the length of a saga relative to Hrofenkel's saga. And for the short stories, we use tenths of a Hrofenkel or a desikil to establish story length. It's all very simple. Yes, because we're on the metric system here at Saga Thing. Yes, that's why. Uh, (laughs) So how long a story is this one? Other of the West Fjords measures a tidy 2,100 words which works out to 2.3 decicels. That's respectable. Very respectable. All right, let's get started. Let's meet our bear-bearing buddy. Part one, a man walks into a bear. Andy, this story is about a man named Auden who comes from a poor family in the West Fjords of Iceland. The Westfjords are more to the northwest of Iceland. It's the part that kind of sticks off of the corner of Iceland. Mm-hmm. And the people of the Westfjords are sometimes characterized in the sagas as being a, a little unpredictable and slightly wilder than the rest of the country. Right. I mean, theoretically, yes. Uh, right now, though, Alvin's not living the wildest life. He lives with his mother, 
uh, taking care of her and using the little money he makes to support them both. He's a good boy, isn't he? Well, he's a dutiful boy. Uh, but as we'll see, he may also have some of that Westfjord recklessness. So Alvin real- realizes that he's stuck in poverty in Iceland, and so he agrees to spend a winter working for a ship's captain, uh, caring for livestock and so forth, in mm-hmm. exchange for food and passage abroad. But before he leaves, he stockpiles three years' worth of money to provide food and lodging for his mother while he's away. And then he sets sail on the ship of Thor the Skipper. Oh, well, that's fine. <laughs> it's not like there's an entire subgenre of sagas about men who go on a three-year trip out of Iceland and then miss their deadline for returning, right? Ah, come on. What could go wrong? <laughs> now, Alvin spends two years as a crewman on board Thor's ship. It's a fine time for him. He's learning to fight, fence, tack into the wind, dodge ice flows off the Greenland coast. Good times. Good times. Everything a young man could hope for from his first adventure abroad, really. It's, it's good yeah. stuff. Uh, for two years, everything's great. Uh, but then, while they're in Greenland during the second summer, Alvin has an idea. That's always dangerous yeah. in these stories. His, his idea is that he should trade everything he owns for a bear. A bear. Mm-hmm. Like an actual bear. Oh, yeah. No, presumably a polar bear, given that he got it in Greenland. So a giant bear, because polar bears are huge. I mean, I guess so. It doesn't actually say how big. uh, And as we'll see, there's been some argument about that. But yeah, no, male polar bears are what, like half a ton when they're grown? Uh, Mm. Sometimes even more than that. Uh, The females are smaller, but, you know, smaller than half a ton is still potentially a lot of freaking bear. There's a lot of wiggle room there. Oh, my God. Now, William Ian Miller actually suggests that it might be a cub, mm-hmm. uh, but that's just speculation. Although I kind of like, like that idea. It's more practical, <laughs> um, but it's not really borne out by anything in the text. Right. A cub would also, I have to say, be a less impressive gift presentation-wise. Uh, but I'm not sure even yeah, a you polar a bear on it. cub would be easy to travel with. Yeah, I mean, any quantity of bear is pres- it's pretty significant. Uh, I'm, I'm struggling to deal with just uh, a little puppy who, who <laughs> likes to mouth and bite everything. Um, yeah. How do you how do you deal with a, a a polar bear on a boat? Yeah. It's not like you can book an extra large cabin for you and the bear, right? I mean, this is not that kind yeah, of there's, boat. There's no honeymoon suite on the Lido deck for a poor Icelander traveling with his bear, I don't think. <laughs> yeah. No. And it's that poor Icelander part that matters here. Yeah. Alvin right. and his bear get a lift back to Norway with Thor's ship. But remember, he's just a deckhand. Mm-hmm. From that point on, he's on his own. With a polar bear of indeterminate size. Mm-hmm. So uh, what's this thing for anyway? Why? why? Well, uh, let's start by reassuring people that it's not for a bear baiting. Nobody thought it was for a bear baiting until you said that. Well, I, they should be thinking that. Right? Bear baitings became popular in Europe in about the 12th century. This oh, story boy. was written down some, sometime in the 13th century. I mean, it's it's pretty grim, but we've had horse fights, cannibal trolls, multiple child exposures in the sagas we've read. A bear baiting might not crack the top 10 of the worst things we've talked about. True. Yeah, and for, for anyone who's not familiar, uh, bear baitings were events where a bear was chained to a stake and then trained dogs attacked the bear. Uh, people would bet on how long it would take the dogs to kill this bear or how many dogs the bear could kill or maim before being torn apart itself. Yeah. Okay, maybe maybe it is in the top ten. It's pretty terrible stuff, man. Uh, now, baitings were popular, too. Uh, the English tutors were especially into them. Uh, Elizabeth I reportedly enjoyed them so much that she stopped the English parliament from outlawing the things. 
Uh, anyway, we could get into a whole thing about bear baitings, but it would be we just pointless. Uh, no, I, I get, we got we got a lot more on bear baitings, um, <laughs> but that's not what Alvin is up to at all. So it's irrelevant. Here. Right. Yeah. Well, let's get back to Alvin. Uh, what's the point of trading all your worldly goods for a polar bear? It would be a good question. Mm-hmm. If it's not for a blood sport, is it supposed to be a magic bear? Does it talk, <laughs> for example? Is this like a Jack and the Beanstalks magic beans type of story? Does well, does the polar bear poop magical poop? No. What? No. But as we'll see later in the story, you're not as far off as you think you are. About uh, the poop? For, no. <laughs> about, the, about, the, about the other stuff. Oh, okay. uh, this is the this is going to be the bear that laid the golden egg. <laughs> I so it's uh, I mean that's not too far off from right. Uh, uh, yeah, all right. For now, Alvin's plan is to bring the bear to Denmark and then present it as a gift to the Danish king Sven. Ah, right. So he's gotten off the ship in Norway, mm-hmm. but he's trying to get to Denmark. Right. And this story is set in the mid 11th century, in the reign of King Sven. And I, I, I see where you're going with this. Mm-hmm. And yes, there is a problem here. Historical Alvin, context is important. Yeah. Alvin is in Norway. And Norway is being ruled at this time by Harald Hardrada. Harald the Hard Dealer. Uh, Harald is in a state of perpetual conflict with Denmark. And he particularly dislikes Sven. And if you're familiar with British history, well, you might know Harald Hardrada as the leader of the Norse army that invaded Northumbria in 1066. The guy who died at the Battle of Stamford Bridge. Yeah, he, he was sort of the also, also ran in the fight for control of Britain that year. Third in the field of three. Ouch. But uh, this is Norway, and Harold's a powerful and ruthless king. And as you said, he's got a real problem with Sven in Denmark. So why does Alvin think it's a good idea to start his journey by traveling to Sven's most powerful enemy? Well, Norway is where Thorer was going. Right? Remember... Alvin is poor. He has to take a free ride wherever it's going or risk getting stuck alone, unemployed in Greenland. In Greenland? You missed a great opportunity. I I thought the quote was enough. I thought dropping into a Wallace Shawn would be patronizing at this point. All right. Well, it's also worth noting that he's got a hungry bear with him. Yeah. You don't want to be alone with a hungry bear in Greenland, uh, no matter what your employment situation is. Uh, it's this is not a comfortable situation at the best of times, right? He's he's got this bear. As long as he's holding on to the bear, it pre- represents a kind of danger. Now, Alvin mm-hmm. knows that Harold is the last person that he wants to have finding out about his plan. So when he gets to Norway, he rents a room and tries to keep a low profile with a bear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, <laughs> that's a that's another class marker, though, isn't it? Yeah, Alvin has no wealthy friends to stay with and no money to smooth his way. Not even an introduction in court. If mm-hmm. he should want it. Uh, a room somewhere is all he can really afford. Right. And you have to imagine that the pet deposit is going to be pretty significant. Oh, man. Uh, we're so used to sagas about high-rolling Vikings and wealthy Gothar's sons, aren't we? Uh, yeah. A story about a poor man dealing with the problems of travel is something out of the ordinary. Although, I actually thought you were going to point out a different issue. Which is... Uh, oh, wait a second. Yeah, he's renting a room and keeping his head down, but he does still have a bear with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a problem. He's trying to keep a low profile, stay out of Harold's radar, but he's sneaking about Norway with a polar bear following him everywhere he goes. Yeah. Harold hears about this odd Icelander and his bear pretty much right away, mm-hmm. and he understandably sends for Alvin to come see him, which, I mean, you would, wouldn't you? I mean, sure. Yeah. And uh, I'll be I'll be Alvin, I guess. Okay. 
Hello, Icelander. I hear you have a great treasure of a bear. Is this so? I, I do have a bear. Would, would you sell me the beast for the same price you paid for it? I do not want to do that, my lord. I see, I see. Well, will you let me pay you double what you paid? That might be more fair, since you gave everything you had to get it. I do not want to do that, my lord. Uh-huh. Will you... give me the bear, then? No, my lord. Okay. What will you do with it, then? I... I... I will go to Denmark and give it to Sven. What was that? I said... I will go to Denmark and give it to King Svein. Are, are you... Can you really be such a fool that you have not heard about the hatred between our countries? Or do you reckon your luck so great that you can saunter between our kingdoms with a treasure when others with more necessary errands cannot travel safely? Um, that was the plan, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's not what it says. <laughs> no, but it's the gist of what it says. No, what he says is, My lord... Whether I can do so is in your power, but I will not agree to do anything other than what I have intended. You're right. That, that more or less is what it says. <laughs> yeah, that was the plan. Yeah. You're, a, you're an interesting man. Go then, why don't you? Go on your way as you like. But <laughs> come see me on your way back and tell me how King Sven has rewarded you for the bear. I'd like to see if you're a fortunate man. That I can promise to do. It's, it's a great conversation. It's it's really great. Uh, there, there's something about the way Harold reacts to Alden that creates a really fun dynamic there. Yeah, it's. I think it's really hard to get this tone across in translation. Uh, but I remember this. This is one of the first chunks of text I grad. I translated in grad school uh-huh. when I was first learning Old Norse. It's in Evie Gordon, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I did the uh, same thing. Yep. Uh, and I remember this as being the first time that I felt that like flicker of insight that language study gives you sometimes. Yeah. Right? The moment when you start to see the edges of how people are thinking in the language you're you're trying to learn. Alvin is playing the laconic Icelander to the hilt in this exchange. Yeah, he's deliberately not helping the conversation at all. Yes, exactly. And Harold's almost reaction- like a almost like a student at uh, office hours when you, <laughs> when they they ask you to help them with an essay and you. You try. Right. I was thinking more of, you know, one of my sons when I'm trying to get them to admit to something they've done. (laughs) Uh, uh, And Harold's reaction to this is this this great mixture of bemusement, frustration, curiosity, even a little bit of grudging admiration for this guy who's decided to sashay through his kingdom with a half ton gift for Harold's rival. Mm-hmm. And that's that's actually in keeping with the characterization of Harold and other sources. He's singled out among the Norwegian kings for his courtesy toward Icelanders. The uh, the suggestion in Heimskringla seems to be that Harold, who's reputed to be something of a poet in his own right, liked having Icelandic skalds or poets around his court. And so he sought out relationships with Icelanders as a kind of way of patronizing the arts. Yeah, Harold's an, a really interesting guy. Uh, we're going to see more of his relationship with Icelanders if we get around to covering the fatter of Haldor Snorrison, who's oh, an Icelandic yeah. friend of King Harold. But speaking of the rivalry, why are Harold and Svein so annoyed with each other, John? Oh, you're very kind to ask. Uh, do you want to explain this one, actually? Wait, I have to answer my own question? I literally just asked. <laughs> <laughs> 
it, it does kind of spoil the illusion, but okay. Uh, Svein <laughs> is the nephew of Knut the Great, the Danish king who took the English throne in 1016 and made England part of the North Sea Empire of the 11th century. Right. Now, of course, that empire didn't last. Yeah, the, the North Sea Empire uh, is a union of Norway, Denmark, yeah. England, and a few other bits and pieces under Knut. Sorry, go ahead. Right, yes. And Knut's empire broke apart when he died, and several men, some his sons and some not, made grabs for various parts of the empire. And one of the more successful claimants was Magnus the Good, who managed to take control of both Norway and Denmark at different points in his life. And Svein, as nephew to Knut, inherits the Danish part of the throne of Magnus the Good, who inherited it from Knut. Are you following me? Okay. Now, on the other side of this, Harald Hardrada's career is a bit more complicated, <laughs> but he's the heir, or he's one of the heirs, to the Norwegian part of the kingdom of Magnus the Good, uh-huh. who was actually his nephew. And he's now been trying to reclaim land at the expense of Sven's family for about two decades at the point that the story takes place. Yeah. He's also got an eye on England, as we know is going to sort of happen in the future and is going to be his downfall. Uh, At the time of this story, England is being ruled by Edward Confessor, but Harold claims it on the basis of a deal made between Knut's son, Har the Knut, and Magnus the Good. (laughs) That's a lot of people (laughs) and places all at once. I know. Um, So the the elevator version of this, the one-sentence version, is that Harold and Sven are two of the rival kings that are scrambling to collect the pieces of Knut the Great's shattered North Sea Empire. That's right. And and honestly, you could just read the saga of Harald Hardrada if you want uh, right. a lot of that information. It's right. a and fantastic we will someday. read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. Go pick it up now. Um, but we're going to come back to this conversation a little bit later, this this politics stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, for now, Alvin's on the road again, literally and figuratively walking through the middle of this dynastic struggle. And still traveling with his bear. Hey, have we... Have we figured out whether this is a trained bear? I mean, how exactly is he traipsing all over the north with this thing and it not kind of just killing him or the people they're passing by? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's not lugging around a caged bear, is he? Uh, well, yeah, no. Uh, there's no real indication about the bear's behavior or its mode of transport. Right? It just follows Alvin around like a terrifying version of Mary's Little Lamb. It's a TARDIS bear. Uh- <laughs> No, it's a plot <laughs> contrivance bear is what it is, Oh, yes. uh, which I admit sense. is what the TARDIS is as well. Uh, but <laughs> this bear isn't itself a mode of transport. And as far as I know, it isn't bigger on the inside. Look at you. That was a bona fide Doctor Who knowledge bit there. Get to know me, Andy. I'm a complex guy. I mean, uh, is knowing Doctor Who stuff really an indicator I mean, of complexity? It's not. It's way outside my wheelhouse. Uh, you know, I, I am I am a plus on Star Wars. I'm about a C on Star Trek. Uh, I am D minus on Doctor Who at best. Yeah, uh, I, I, I'll be, I'm around that that spot. Yeah. I actually married into a Doctor Who family, and I've I've had to learn a great deal. Uh, ah. I would have been I would have been a low F before I got married. <laughs> uh, but I have a sister in law who actually uh, her wedding was partly Doctor Who themed. They had this beautiful uh, like foot and a half tall TARDIS. Uh, that was at the, at the gift table. It was kind of like where people were putting putting like uh, cards in. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Uh, anyway, uh, so back to our text uh, and our, our TARDIS bear. The, the text is taking it for granted that the bear can just go wherever Alvin goes uh, and doesn't seem to cause any trouble on the way. So the answer is no. We have no idea how he moves the bear from place to place, but 
we probably do have to assume that it's been trained or otherwise kept under control. Perhaps it's even, maybe it's even just left on in the cage on the ship and he doesn't really have to interact with it much. Right. I mean, although at this point he is moving overland at various points. Right? Uh, well, he's in Norway and he's got to go to Denmark. Right. That involves right. getting yeah, on the ship. Yeah, absolutely. But he's got to then travel inland to get there. There uh, but are no, rivers, is, lovely rivers. Uh, I think you're thinking that he has much more money at his disposal than he does, right? The whole point is here, he can't just pay skippers to ship him around whenever he wants to. He does not have an Uber, Andy. This is it's, not, he's not, he's not getting a lift that will carry a polar bear for him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but since this is supposed to be a fun holiday story, I'm going to assume he's treating the bear well during all this and that this bear is not just being left in a cage and abused. I like to imagine that this bear is wearing a lovely scarf with uh, a red scarf with uh, white snowflakes knitted into it. Fair enough. Yeah. That's uh, that's probably quite an assumption. Anyway, the bear <laughs> and his boy make their way down the coast and eventually cross over to Denmark. As you say, they have to hop across but by the time Alvin gets there, his meager resources have been used up, and he's forced to start begging for food. Does the bear know any tricks? Can it play symbols or <laughs> does no, it that, dance? No, that's usually monkeys. Uh, no, this this bear is just sitting nearby. I imagine looking thoughtfully at Alvin while his tummy rumbles. So he's got to beg for food for himself and his polar bear. <laughs> yep. That's a hard sell. And frankly, I would imagine more people are going to be willing to feed the polar bear. (laughs) Excuse me, could you spare a bit of bread and several dozen pounds of seal meat? Pardon pardon me, ma'am, but have you any large arctic fish about (laughs) your person? Preferably alive. Now, this actually does reinforce that Alvin is way down the economic ladder mm-hmm. from most of the people we read about. And that's that's a cool thing right. about this. And you think he's going to Uber his way up the rivers of Denmark. Man, have you seen Uber prices? He can't afford <laughs> Uber prices. No, it's But this is one of the things I really like about this story. Uh, Alvin's destitution shapes the nature of his experiences. It's not just window dressing. right? It actually matters to the narrative that he's a poor man. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for instance, at this point, Alvin has to beg from a man named Aki, uh, who happens to be one of King Sven's stewards. And Aki, uh, well, Aki's not a nice man. Yeah. Alvin says, please, could you spare provisions for myself and my bear? I plan to give this bear to King Sven. <laughs> no, no, I won't. But I'll sell the food to you if you want. But I, I have no money. Thus the begging, you see. But I I want to find a way to bring this bear and give him to the king anyway. Ah, I think we can make a deal. I'll give you the food and help you to reach the king. But in exchange, I want to own half the bear. After all, if you don't get the food you need, the bear will die. And then you'll have nothing to give the king at all. And at this point, Alvin has no choice, really. Right. And so he agrees to share the bear. And he and Aki agree that the king can judge the entire situation later. Right. Possibly not a smart move on Aki's part. I mean, what? Shaking down a poor foreigner who's given up his worldly goods to bring a grand present to this king? Mm. How could that possibly go wrong? This is a foolproof (laughs) plan. Oh, yeah. Aki's a genius. If it's a foolproof plan, then King Sven is a different kind of fool because he is not thrilled. No. Uh, when when they bring the bear to him, uh, this is actually another one of those dialogue scenes. Uh, now i got to be King Sven, too. 
<laughs> I think you actually got the soft job being Alvin the entire time. Well, uh, next time I'll just have Alvin bring you one of Greenland's famous tiny violins. Oh, thanks very much. Mm. All right. <clears throat> Who are you? I am an Icelandic man, my lord, and I've just come here from Greenland and Norway. I wanted to give you this bear. I gave everything I owned for it, but I made a blunder, and now I I own only half the bear. And then Alvin goes on to explain the arrangement he made with Alki, who's standing right there next to him. Is this true, what he says, Alki? Yes, it is true. I'm sorry, are you just talking to yourself now? You're, you're... Yes, I am. <laughs> Alrighty then. Um, you let me know when you're done. Yeah, it's, it's almost over. Did that seem appropriate to you? To use the power I have given you to impede and hinder a man who is bringing to me a treasure that he had given up all he had to buy? Even King Harold thought it advisable to give him safe conduct, though he is our enemy. But, my lord, you deserve to be killed. I'll not go that far, but you will leave this country at once and never let yourself catch my eye again. And you, Aldun, you are welcome here. I will thank you as the gift of the bear was yours alone. And please, do stay with me. And that's the end of the first part of this story. Aldun has successfully made his way across several countries, narrowly avoided the wrath of King Harald Hardrada of Norway, and delivered his bear to King Svein. Great. Happy days for all, except for Alki. But our story doesn't end there. Well, it probably should, because the bear's travels are over. Yeah, I know, but despite what we've been doing, the, the story isn't really about the bear. It's ah. about the kind of man who would gamble his worldly possessions on transporting a bear to a king. Yes, now Alvin has to figure out what to do with his life now that he's out of the bear-giving game and, and out on his own. That's right. Brotherless is the back of a bear, man, Andy. Uh, ooh, a callback. <laughs> Part 2, Roman Holy Day. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'll give you that. It's pretty good. Uh, but you know that uh, homophonous puns only work if people know why there's a joke, right? It's kind of important. I, I, I realize that part of the joke is that it's written down as Roman, like you're traveling. But yeah. it, it also helps if, they, if my jokes aren't built on references to medieval religious practice and 70-year-old <laughs> rom-coms. I've told you before, sometimes these are just for me. Oh, I mean, I appreciate them. They're definitely, they, they, they hit with me. <laughs> All right. So Alvin spends some time in the court of King Svein. Uh, we don't know how much time exactly, but he does spend some time there. Yeah. Now, he's been accepted now, right? Initiated into the company of the king's men. Uh, Edward Fitchner argued that this was the real point of the story, in fact. That it, it serves as a kind of bildungsroman, right? A coming-of-age story about a young man reaching manhood in a gift-giving culture. Of course, as we said, the story is not over yet. Yeah. Alvin has earned a place in Svein's household, and he and the king get on rather well together. But eventually he grows restless, and he tells the king that he wants to leave Denmark. See? Young man, restless blood, all that. But, I mean, he's not just getting antsy. He specifically wants to travel to Rome on a pilgrimage. Because it turns out that this is a much more explicitly Christian story than the bear-gifting part would suggest. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's a bit of a surprise, narratively, that, that Alvin suddenly gets an itch to visit Rome. Mm -hmm. 
But really, this isn't unexpected if we look at the time frame. This text is written in the very Christianized Iceland of the 13th or 14th century, for starters. Right, and it's also taking place in the 11th century. Right. Christianity might not be as ubiquitous in the north, but Iceland was into its second or third generation since the conversion, even at the historical moment when the story takes place. Sure, and all of that means uh, that Svein is going to be in favor of a performatively Christian activity like a pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. So the king gives Alvin money for the journey and only asks him to return once his pilgrimage is done. Right now, do we need some kind of traveling music for this kind of the story? Uh, it would have to be a short song. Uh, there's there's really not much to tell, honestly. Uh, the trip to Rome is essentially uneventful, so mm-hmm. I'm glad we introduced it. Um, Alvin spends quite a while in the city, but on the way home, he suddenly falls ill, and he gets sick enough that he can't travel. And by the time he's recovered, the money that Svein gave him for the trip has suddenly run out, almost as if money is a theme in this uh, Yes, this and story. almost as if Alvin keeps uh, doing a bad job of... <laughs> Deciding how much money he's going to need for a trip. <laughs> yeah, Alvin, not not good with planning. Uh, and Alvin, uh, again, he, he falls into beggary. Uh, and when he finally manages to return to Denmark, no one recognizes him as the handsome fellow who once brought Svein a bear. Well, whatever Alvin had, it was pretty serious. Uh, we're told he became so terribly ill that he lost a lot of weight. He grew bald and was quite miserable. Mm. It's not surprising they don't recognize him. He's a shriveled up, bald, probably much older looking man than when he left. Poor Alvin. Yeah. Yeah. This story starts off with a boy and his bear on a wacky adventure. And out of nowhere, he, he he's the little matchstick Viking. I, so, I mean, now that you say that, how should we read this part of the story? Mm. I mean, Alvin's path seems to be a righteous one, right? I mean, with it's a traditional, but maybe somewhat uninspired narrative arc of a good but poor Icelander outwitting a Norwegian king of questionable reputation. Outwitted, though. And then being rewarded by a Christian king. Mm -hmm. Then we get the pilgrimage to Rome, which is, I mean, that's that's pretty much the gold standard for laudable conduct. And now we're in Act 2, and suddenly Alvin's got what looks like a bad case of karma rash. (laughs) And just to rub it in, Alvin has reached Denmark at Easter when the church celebrations are at their height. Hmm. This probably should have been an Easter episode, maybe. Not Too late for that. We can always claim it's a Yuletide celebration and there's a manuscript error. Let's do that, yes. It's a poor scholar, though, who blames his sources, John. In this case, it's a pair of middling scholars at the end of their semesters. (laughs) Tomato, potato. Um, So anyway, what we're after here is why Alvin gets sick despite making all the right moves to this point in the story. Yeah, I mean, we can wave it off as a plot contrivance, which it obviously is, but in a story that clearly thinks about morality and and the motives of people in a society, illness has to at least have the possibility of providing meta-commentary. Well, I mean, he he doesn't die, if that helps at all. Not much, though, but, but we can save this for later. Let's do that. Um, so Alvin tracks the king down to a church where he's hearing mass, mm-hmm. but he's too ashamed of his appearance. So he hides in a wing of the church, and later, when the king is presiding over the Easter feast, Alvin doesn't, I'm sorry, the Yule feast, Alvin doesn't go inside the hall. (laughs) He takes a handout meal that's offered to pilgrims who happen to be passing through. Mm. Yeah, I I think you've missed the point there, Andy. When you make an emendation to the manuscript, it's supposed to be a silent emendation. Uh, But (laughs) 
<laughs> but that's fine. Uh, meanwhile, inside the hall, the party is turning raucous, and the men are getting drunk. Mm-hmm. You know, the way you do at an Easter party no, slash Yule party. Yule party, John. Right, God. right. And if Alvin was nervous about approaching the king before, well, he's definitely not feeling confident about doing it when the king is surrounded by drunk warriors. Right. And this is another thing I wanted to make sure we pointed out about the Stouter. Alvin isn't a warrior. Mm-hmm. Like, at all, as far as we can tell from the story. He's an adventurer, sure, but he's not about to bluster his way through a pack of drunken champions and risk getting his head chopped off. So that just sounds smart, though. But, uh, yeah, he's not violent by nature. Um, could he theoretically defend himself in a pinch? Probably, at least as well as any reasonably fit man, but he's not a warrior. In fact, I don't think we're ever told that he even carries weapons. Yeah, I mean, he occasionally carries a loaded bear, but that's uh, that's that's not helping him at this point. <laughs> uh, and, I mean, we can, we can infer that he probably has something, but it might just be his, like, eating knife or maybe a sort of multi-tool knife for doing basic labor. As you said, it's enough to defend himself in a tight corner, but he doesn't carry the weapons of a killer. Mm-hmm. And I, that's important. These stories aren't always trading on violent masculinity. There are other criteria that can make a figure story worthy. In this case, Alvin is a, an Icelander with nerves of steel who's willing to face down kings. That's a pretty solid basis for a short story all by itself. Yeah, but now those steel nerves have been weakened by disease and self-doubt. Mm-hmm which is another element of this story's commitment to plausibility. I'm not saying this is a real story, because obviously it's not. (laughs) But the author is going out of his way to establish a kind of realism in the story. Mm -hmm. And Alden's lack of confidence in his strength and his shame over his appearance makes sense contextually. And so he hangs around outside until King Svein and his men go to Vespers. And it's Easter, so everybody's going to the prayers. Even the drunkest warrior isn't going to shirk his Christian obligations under the eye of Sven, who's sort of an idealized Christian king in this story. Sure, yeah. And we'll get more evidence of that in just a second, but Alvin still can't bring himself to step forward. Uh, And as the king is returning to the hall after his prayers, he does spot a man cringing and hiding in the shadows, and he asks him to step forward. Alvin emerges from those shadows and falls to his knees before the king. But it takes a minute before Svein recognizes him. You have changed much since we last met, Alden. Now the king's champions see Alden and start to laugh, but Sven says, well, You've no cause to laugh. This man has better provided for his soul than you lot have done. So there's that idealized Christian kingship coming to the fore. Mm-hmm. Svein now has Alden taken inside, bathed and fed and given new clothing. And a nice toupee. There you go. <laughs> and Alvin stays with him for the spring. I think he's only temporarily bald, right? I mean, he loses his hair because of the illness. Presumably, it's growing back at this point. Uh, the saga Thicker and say. more lustrous than ever. Sure. Um, now, King Svein offers to keep Alvin with him permanently and to give him the position of the king's cupbearer. Mm-hmm. Which is crazy, because this guy is really not much of an impressive figure, but... <laughs> For the purposes of the narrative, we'll accept it. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, Alvin has other plans. God be grateful to you, my lord, for all the honor you would bestow on me. But, in fact, I have other plans. I wish to travel to Iceland. That seems an odd choice. No. It is that I cannot live with being held in honor here with you while my mother is a vagrant out in Iceland. 
for the provisions I left for her before I sailed from Iceland must now be exhausted. No, <laughs> John, how long has he been gone? What did he leave, this penniless fellow? What did he leave uh, her? You know, uh, there's actually been discussed. Uh, William Ian Miller does cover how long he's gone for. It's and makes the argument that it is possible for this timeline to fit into the three years. But it does seem likely that he's been gone longer than three years. I mean... Uh, that a lot has to have happened in the second summer if we're going to read this as a three-year adventure. Uh, but okay. Um, anyway, uh, Sven is convinced by that argument. Uh, regardless of whether or not uh, Alvin's mother is alive or dead in Iceland, uh, <laughs> Sven finds it convincing. That is well and nobly said. That reason alone could have made your leaving acceptable to me. You will turn out to be a fortunate man. But stay with me. Until a ship is prepared. So, once again, Alvin knows what to say to get the king's permission to go without giving offense. Yep. This is a real talent of his. Or maybe he's just very lucky. Yeah, I, I don't, to understand what Alvin's turning down, we have to examine Sven's treatment of him. Uh, Sven offers to make him cupbearer to the king. In other words, to Sven himself. Right? And Andy, you choked on that when we got to that moment in the mm-hmm. story because that's a crazy thing for him to be doing. Yeah. Uh, and I just want to be clear because to some people that might sound menial, like he's being offered a low level job in the hall's service staff mm-hmm. or something. So I just want to be clear that is not what's happening at all. Sven is offering him a very high profile position in the court. Yeah. The king's cupbearer is a person of high title and great responsibility. Yeah. It's almost like a combination of a butler and a chief of staff. Butler and chief of staff. That, that's Benson. You're talking about Benson. You are so old, but I. Hey, Robert Guillaume was a treasure. A <laughs> national treasure, sir. You're not helping. Uh, Jeeves? That's even older. Okay, fine. Uh, the point is, cupbearer to the king is a position that shows Sven's absolute faith in Alvin. Mm-hmm. Uh, among other things, the cupbearer oversees the serving of drink at the king's table. And he's essentially the man standing between the king and any plots to poison him or attack him while he's drinking. Alvin has impressed Sven as a man of resolve and resource, and a man who can be trusted with his personal safety. Or, read another way, the shared commitment to Christianity of the two men forms a bond of trust between them. Mm-hmm. Either way it works, I think, and that's usually a sign of a well-constructed Thouter. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, so, so now, having tended to his friendship with the king, Alvin's just waiting for a ship to be ready to leave. And somewhat predictably... This turns out to be a ploy. Mm-hmm. Svein wants to shower more honors on Alvin. So at the end of the spring, the king brings Alvin to the docks, and the two of them walk past ships, readying themselves for trips to Saxony and Sweden and Norway and the Baltics. Right. So in other words, it's prime time for traveling. Right? Yeah. Unlike Alvin stumbling into Svein's hall at the beginning of spring after traveling in the winter while sick and poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, This time, Alvin's going to travel home as one should. In style, in other words. Because they finally come to a beautiful ship that's being stocked and outfitted for a sea voyage. Right. And now it's it's time for everyone's favorite saga game show. Guess who this ship's for? Sven says, how do you like this ship, Alvin? It's very nice, my lord. This ship is yours, Alvin, oh as repayment for the gift of the bear that you gave to me. Uh, all this can be yours if 
The faith is right. This is a good lesson, kids. If you ever have a chance to give a king a polar bear, mm-hmm. do it. They apparently really like getting polar bears. Uh, it's not over yet. There's still <laughs> more. Oh, right. <clears throat> now, I've heard that your country is poorly provided with harbors. And that in many places there is only open coastline with many dangers for ships. If you were shipwrecked and you lost your ship and goods, you'd have too little to show that you had met King Sven and that you'd given him a treasure. Here, here is a pouch full of silver so that you won't be left destitute if you are shipwrecked. Uh, A fanny pack full of silver? Yep. Great. But uh, if there's a shipwreck, wouldn't having a bag of metal tied to you be a problem? Hmm? Oh, no, 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 no. Sven's thought of that, too. Of course he has. It could happen that you lose that pouch, too, in the shipwreck. And then it would do you little good to have met King Sven and have given him a treasure. And Sven, at this point, takes an arm ring from his own arm. Take this as well, so that even if things go so badly that you wreck and lose all of your goods and your silver, you won't be penniless when you reach shore. And I advise you not to give away this arm ring unless you someday need to repay a noble man for a great favor done for you. Now, farewell. And finally, Alvin sails away, with a ship packed with supplies and a heavy bag on his hip. Right. And to be clear, there isn't going to be a shipwreck here. This is not This is not a foretelling of disaster. This is just, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, it's a pretty well-organized part of the story, I have to say. It brings us back to an idea that we talked about before, that Alvin represents a different kind of economic reality than we usually see in these stories. Yeah. Uh, how many times, Andy, have we seen men sail out of Iceland for years? In at least half of the stories we've covered, probably more. Yeah. Uh, and how often... Do the characters involved have to worry about things like food security and rent for their dependents while they're away? Almost never. It's very rare. Uh, And that gives us next bit some extra meaning. Mm -hmm. As you say, the open-handed king is a trope, but we've rarely seen someone in such need of generosity as Alvin is. And so now Alvin's a man of means, with a great story and a full ship to bring home to Iceland. But he's not actually going to Iceland. At least not directly. Oh, no. He, he's he got a loose end to tie up first. Yes, he do. He made a promise on his way to Denmark, so it's time to head back to Norway. Mm-hmm. Part three. Bear and back again. Now, why is Auðun bothering to keep a promise made under duress to Harald Hardrada? Well, if you remember, the promise was just that he'd stop in at Harold's court on the way home and tell him how the journey to Sven turned out. That's that's not a huge burden. But completely unnecessary, like Harold even cares or remembers. <laughs> you could make a case for Alvin's honor being tied up in having made a promise. Fine. But he's also got a mother in Iceland who, as far as he knows, is starving or homeless at this point. Ah, well, he's a man of means now. And he's got a ship, goods, money. He's got some business to do. Uh, he might get his life ended. Uh, well, <laughs> this it's game. actually, Come on. It's, it's mentioned later that the ship has been filled with goods specifically for the Norwegian market. Okay. He's also probably looking at a future as a trader because he has his own ship now which means needing access to Norwegian ports without having to worry about an annoyed King Harald every time he sets sail. Mm-hmm. But 
that's probably overthinking the storyline. Yeah, yeah, I know. Now, ultimately, this is a symmetry to Alvin's journey that serves the narrative. I think that's what drives it. Sad but true. Even Mm -hmm. a wealthy man must bow to the inevitability of narrative structure. Yep. Alvin reaches Norway without incident and spends a while unloading his cargo, which the narrator makes a point of telling us was a much bigger job than it had been last time he was in Norway. Mm. So is this the narrator bragging on Alvin's behalf now? Right. I mean, last time he just had to like lead a bear off the ship and he was done. (laughs) So kind of, yeah. So when he reaches Harold's court, we now get a second version of the conversation they had before. Uh, And Harold immediately speaks more respectfully to Alvin than he did the first time. He says, sit down and drink with us. I will. Thank you. How did King Sven reward you for the bear? By accepting the gift from me. Well, I could have done that. What (laughs) else did he give you? Well, he gave me silver so that I could make a pilgrimage. Mm. Sven does that for many men, even when they do not bring him treasures. What else did he give you? He offered to make me his cupbearer and to bestow high honors on me. Ah, nice gesture, I admit. But surely there was something more. Then he gave me a ship filled with goods that are most desired here in Norway. Oh, well, that was graciously done. But I might still have done that much. Did he give you anything else? Oh, my God. Dude, if if Harold Hardrod had sounded like this, he never would have had a saga written about him. Why? Because he sounds like some kind of a cheap Brian Blessed impression? <laughs> what are you saying, boy? Speak up. Stand straight. I Oh, sorry. He, 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 he gave me a leather pouch full of silver so that I would not be penniless, even if my ship were wrecked. Oh, now that is splendid. I admit, I wouldn't have done that. I would have thought myself free of obligation after giving you the ship. Was, uh, was there anything else? you shifting into Monty Python now. What? In, Don't indeed, mumble, there, boy. In, indeed, there, there was. He gave me the arm ring that I wear on this arm so that I would not be poor even if everything else were lost until I sold this, of course, obviously that goes without saying. (laughs) He told me not to give it to any man unless I felt myself obliged to repay a noble man dearly. And now I have found that man, since you had the power to deprive me of both the bear and my life. And yet you let me travel in peace to a place others were forbidden to go. Ah. Ah, there it all works out. Uh, And that's pretty much the end of the narrative in terms of plot points. Mm -hmm. Harold is uh, very impressed with Alden's gift and rewards him handsomely before Alden sets sail for Norway early in the summer. Now, we we can assume he arrives in time to secure his mother's future, although the story doesn't actually tell us anything about her or really about his return to Iceland. Oh, that's that's oh, This is a happy story. It's only logical. Uh, Oh, we, well, it's in we're the now sequel. A... <laughs> <laughs> but Shmee, he's, he's, he's going to come home and find his mother dying in his arms. Well, she she died as a result of a feud that was ongoing. And then mm-hmm. Alvin gets involved in the feud mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. See, this is the problem with sequels is that they, mm-hmm. they strain the logic of the original. 
Uh, I'm assuming at the end of the second movie, the bear shows up and tells him, I've got an adventure for you. <laughs> and, it, um, and then it holds a lightsaber up and then right. presses the button and it goes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now. Uh, that's the end of the story of Alvin and the Bear, and it ends not with a bang, but with us being ridiculous. <laughs> I I love this story, but I sometimes despair of getting anyone else to care about it. Where do you stand on it? You know, I'll tell you this, John. Tell me. I had the same experience you did back in grad school translating this thing. It's one of those texts that you cut your Old Norse teeth on and really get a sense of the language across a whole narrative, and that's that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And back then, we really emphasized the cleverness of Alvin as he deals with Scandinavian royalty. And that's still an interesting feature of this text. Uh, this down-on-his-luck Icelander, a very meager means, holding his ground against men others would probably grovel to. Mm-hmm. But I'd say yeah. reading this now, all these years later, I have to say... I'm far more interested in the economics of this story and how oh. it plays into Iceland's evolving status in the Scandinavian world. Now, I know that William Ian Miller makes a big deal out of Alvin's inherent luck in this tale. Now, that's an interesting take, but not one that I think is central to the author's approach here. Alvin's low status is as much a reflection of Iceland's situation as his undaunted approach to dealing with royalty is of Iceland's proud and even defiant attitude. And that, for me, is what makes this a great story. Now, I, I actually want to talk about that. Yeah, that's fine. And I'll just, I'll, I'll conclude with this. Even though the story may have a number of contrivances that strain credulity, it's still a charming story that captures something of the Icelandic experience from this period. And it gives us a rare glimpse at a character who's not a nobleman that can buy or fight his way out of any situation. And I think that's a reason that this story is anthologized so often. That's exactly what I want to talk about. Okay. Well, but before we, we do that, should... We should probably talk about the manuscript tradition behind this story, shouldn't we? Uh, I mean, come on. See, you got you got me all excited there for a minute. Yeah, yeah but I know you want way. to talk about manuscripts. Uh, I'm not. I'm less excited about that than I am about talking about the narrative contrivance. Okay. Uh, yeah, but you're just you're just luring people in with a tale of bears and kings in the frozen north, and now you're going to lull them to sleep with a thoughtful discussion of manuscript transmission. What makes you think that any of our listeners are awake at this point? <laughs> We're still listening. Uh, I was actually surprised we didn't cover the manuscript story right away. Frankly, I'm ashamed of us. Frankly, I I think you were in charge of the introduction, so I'm ashamed of you. <laughs> no. I mean, we can both be ashamed of you. <laughs> All right. Uh, now, carry on. Uh, so there are three main manuscripts that come up for the Stouter, yeah? Right, yeah. The earliest is uh, the version in the Morkenskina manuscript, which dates to the late 13th century. And then there are two 14th century versions, the one in the Flatter book and the one in the Hulda manuscript. Which version of the story you read depends a great deal on which manuscript the editor or translator is working from. And that's important. Right. If you're reading in English, you might well be reading the M, the Morkenskina mm-hmm. version, or the F, Flatter book version, uh, or some conflation of the two. It gets so confusing, but yes. Mm-hmm. And the third manuscript is generally seen as an expansion of the M version and isn't usually in the conversation. And anytime you have more than one version of a medieval text, you're going to have to deal with variants in the story and the writing, uh, something that we're going to see when we get to our next saga. Um, yes. Now, sometimes that's not a big deal, but sometimes... It, it really is. Mm-hmm. It's probably a medium deal for this story, if I'm being honest. Uh, scholars generally refer to the M version, supposedly because it's the earliest version. But honestly, 
also because it's the version that's used for the Eastlands Fordenry series, and that carries a lot of weight, something we'll also yeah. talk about in uh, our next saga. Absolutely. Uh, and, the, and the M version is also a bit shorter than the later versions. Uh, but there are some scholars like uh, Herman Paulson who prefer the later F text. Mm-hmm. And some, like William Ian Miller, even argue that the later, longer version is truer to the missing original version of the story. Yeah. Now, there are some interesting debates to be had about competing traditions and whether we can or should be working toward a theoretical er text for a given story. I'm not a big fan of all that. Right. Now, that's that's probably steering into the snowbank a little mm-hmm. bit. Just the, uh, just the facts, man. No, I actually think it is relevant. What the heck was that? You said just the facts, ma'am, so I switched. It's like Julia Child doing an impression of Helena Bonham Carter. <laughs> no. What uh, what discussion there's been about this story has usually turned on the question of narrative intent. Mm. And that means trying to work out whether the text we've got is anything like the text that was composed. I Maybe. But I, I think hmm. we can acknowledge that and then move back to talking about the story itself. Uh, you know I'm a guy who appreciates a little symmetry in his story structure. Oh, yeah. And this story is full of parallels, both overt and subtle ones. Oh, all right. Hang on, everyone. Buckle in. We're going to talk formalism. Let me get my pillow. No, we're not. I, I mean, yes. Okay, we are. I know But not a are. lot. Did you love it? We, we, can, we can stop anytime we wanted. There's been some discussion of this story's form and structure, most most recently by Hauke Antonsen in an article a couple of years ago. Hauke's analysis, which is really interesting, by the way, we'll, we'll link to that on the website. No, we won't. It's, we will. No, uh, we probably won't. Just, I, we absolutely will. Will uh, we, though? If I have to do it myself, I will ask you to do it. Uh, <laughs> there, there's the rub right there. Uh, now, uh, Hauke's analysis establishes the author's typological thinking. He argues for a single author, by the way, a deliberate process of tale construction and some interesting ideas about the source material for the religious aspects of the tale. And there's a lot in that, but I'm talking about something rather more basic, which is just that I want to look at some of the parallel structure within the tale. Well, I mean, if we're going to do this, can we talk about one of the really obvious ones? Yeah. Those parallel conversations with Harold at the beginning and the end, right? We said earlier that Harold is sort of grudgingly admiring of Alden's nerve and refusing him point blank. That's nobody does yeah. that. Yeah, right. It's 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 pretty clear that Alden is being offered friendship, or at least an opportunity to earn friendship, right? To ingratiate himself with Harold mm-hmm. on the outward journey, but he turns it down flat. The this question and answer stuff is typical of Thouter of these short stories, and Harold and Alden play their roles to the hilt. Harold is the epitome of the Norwegian king being confounded by a hard-headed Icelander, while Alvin is quietly relishing the role of the stoic and laconic Icelander, whose lack of veneration for kings gives him a, a kind of odd social power. Yeah, that's even true on the return trip. Mm-hmm. Alvin isn't really volunteering any of this information. He he makes Harold ask for each piece of information individually, and only gives enough each time to prompt the next question. While Harold's mm-hmm. power is never denied, Alvin has the upper hand throughout the conversations. Right. And that's, that's, that's something that fits a pattern that you can see if you read a lot of these shorter mm-hmm. stories. right? The clever Icelander outthinking or bluffing a Norwegian lord or king and living to tell the tale. Yeah. Now, the fact that this is Harald Hardrada does add a level of perceived risk to Alvin's daring. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, we said earlier that Harold is reputed to have been amiable in most of his dealings with Icelanders, but he's also the man who terrorized entire kingdoms during his career in the Varangian Guard. And he has a personal reputation for cruelty when roused to anger. Right, and that, I think, brings us to the gift-giving part of the story. So we're finally getting to that again. Now, mm-hmm. Again, this was supposed to be a holiday-themed episode. It, I, I don't know. Has it gotten away from <laughs> oh, us? We're talking about gifts. Oh, gifts. I'm disappointed in your small-minded adherence to themes, sir. I'll try to bear up under the strain. Ah, bear pun. Get it. Uh, William Ian e. Miller's book-length study of the story, Alvin and the Polar Bear, goes into some detail about those conversations between Alvin and Harold. And he argues that Harold is engaging in a multi-level negotiation here. He's interested in obtaining the bear, but at the lowest possible cost to himself. Buying the bear, even at twice its original price, might still be a lot cheaper than accepting it as a gift and then being expected to be generous in return. Mm -hmm. Because as Sven shows... A king has to go to much greater lengths to be judged generous than a poor man does. Sure. And when a poor man has given you a treasure that is all that he has in the world, well, how much wealth or esteem is enough to repay the gift? Mm. Not in the eyes of a poor man, but in the eyes of the observing men of the court. Right. The warriors and the poets of the court are going to judge Sven's response. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. The culture of gift-giving is a significant factor in what we like to call the game of honor. Right? We talk about that a lot on this program. If Sven is seen as being miserly in his demonstrations of gratitude to Alvin, his reputation will suffer. And we see that in the second conversation with Harold. Harold is deeply interested in Sven's performance of gratitude for the gift of the bear. Yeah, and, and what he learns is that Sven ended up in the same position Harold was trying to avoid being in having to lavishly repay a poor man's gift. Yeah, when we think of it that way, Harold's question uh, in the first conversation, will you give me the bear? Uh, it isn't so much a hopeful request or a veiled verbal aggression. It becomes something more like, will you give me the bear? <laughs> it's both guarded and resigned. Right? Having tried to buy the bear at double its cost, he now entertains the possibility of having to receive a gift that will cost much more than its accessible value. Yeah, and gift-giving culture is much more complicated than just buying your boss a box of chocolates, in other words. Yeah, uh, okay, and Sven does play the gift-giving game well, we know that. Even his enemy, Harold, is impressed by the showmanship of Sven's generosity. And just to be clear, Sven Spiel about shipwrecks and the danger of Alvin being left poor if his ship sinks, right? all that is just window dressing. Sven's not actually a worrywart with an irrational phobia about shipwrecks. For one thing, I mean, shipwrecks are a real concern. And Alvin's financial situation means that he's less able to absorb the cost of a disaster than some ship owners might be. But really, this is about the king creating an excuse that allows him to demonstrate greater generosity. Yes, yes, of course, yeah. And as we said, the problem here is the calculations that go into a gift-giving culture like this. Mm -hmm. Alvin has shown a generosity and a loyalty of almost unlimited scope. He's given Svein a polar bear, we'll assume it's a polar bear, from Greenland at great cost to himself. It's something that represented everything he had in the world. And Mm -hmm. he faced down Svein's enemy, Harold Hardrada, to deliver this thing. Absolutely. 
but I want to bring us back here to a point about typology, mm-hmm. about looking for parallels. Sven and Harold do have the option of just accepting the gift, right? Mm-hmm. They can look on the gift as a kind of tribute. The repayment is that they accept the gift and are favorably disposed toward the giver. Sure. Yeah. If they're going to be cheap about it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes. Okay. But the, the favor of a king is a gift all by itself. Yeah. To exert self-control as a lord exercises some of the same social muscles as gift giving. It's not necessarily passive, right? It's an act of not doing. So not doing something cruel, you mean? Because there's more to it than that. No, 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 of course, of course. Like I said, there's exertion here, right? It's a performance of not doing something that the Lord could do, i.e. to overwhelm his social inferior through violence or through other exercises of authority. And that's the other reason that Alvin feels compelled to return to Harold. As he says, Harold could have stopped him, but didn't. And Alvin correctly, correctly understands that that is a kind of gift. It's the gift of Harold's forbearance. The gift of... Wait a minute. Was that another bear joke? Forbearance? What? No. <laughs> no, but I'll claim half points for it. Forbearance. Mm. Ah. Okay. I'm, on, I, I'm actually on board with this. It fits mm. with the point that William Ian Miller makes in Alvin and the Polar Bear about a biblical echo in this story. Because he mm. places Alvin's interaction with Alki and Svein in conversation with the story of Cain and Abel. His point is that biblical commentators felt compelled to justify the Genesis account of God's rejection of Cain's offering. In other words, God shouldn't be seen as merely playing favorites. Mm -hmm. So to save God from having no discernible justification for his action, well, commentators ascribed good motives to Abel and bad ones to Cain. Okay, and then because of that, God's preference for Abel is justified, sure. Yeah, so by Miller's logic, this story makes Alvin an Abel type. Both are shepherds who give their Lord a gift that represents a real sacrifice on their part. And Cain is turned into Alki, whose gift is false, and who the Lord might be expected to kill, but who gets exiled instead. See, that's a lot of fun to think about. I I don't know if it fully plays out. I, I can't imagine a medieval audience accepting a direct correspondence from God's prerogatives to a monarch's. But certainly there's room for analogy. There, there definitely is. Um, and we could go on and on and on about that. But uh, I think that's that a good cap for that particular conversation. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else you wanted to cover or say before we wrap this I up? I mean, there's plenty. But uh, we've got things to do. We've got grades to submit. You do. And uh, eventually a new saga to cover. Yes. And we'll be back soon on Christmas Eve with a special story we've written up for you. Oh, that's right. And then we've also got uh, in January a new saga. It's going to be the saga of Thord Menace. And in the meantime, if you'd like to complain about the low number of bear puns in this episode, we'd love to hear from you. Andy, how do we hear from them? Well, you can get in touch with us on Facebook, where we are Saga Thing Podcast, or on Twitter, where we are Saga Thing Pod. And for more extended exchanges that I can find more easily, you can reach us via email at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com. And we also have an Instagram, which is the same as our Facebook, which... You know, John has no idea what that is, but it's Saga Thing Podcast. <laughs> or uh, you can send it along with uh, the five golden rings, four calling birds, three French hens, and whatever else you have lying around the place. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with the beginning of our next saga in the beginning of a new year. We'll see you soon or hear from you soon or you'll hear from us. However it goes, happy holidays, everyone. Bye for now. Bye for now.
Og hún var að bræða hann 